when you're aspiring, the goal is getting picked up, getting a contract, a publisher, or say yes. And once you hit that goal, which I don't want to make it sound like it just came upon me, it took years and years. When you hit that goal, there's celebration, and it's like you're let into a secret society. Curtain's drawn back, and you get to see the other side of the curtain, and then you realize there's this whole other space of goals and paths and information and learning that you have to do. It's not, you're there, not by a long shot. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Welcome to the Rights for Women podcast. I'm your guest host, Mary Lou Stevens, author of The Last of the Apple Blossom, which is set in Tasmania, mainly in the Human Valley. And today I'm joined by Joe Dixon, whose debut novel, The House of Set in Tasmania, have become more and more popular in recent years. What is it about the allure of this small island state? <laughs> I was born there. I really didn't have a choice. But Joe moved <laughs> there after living an expat life for many years. Hello, Joe. Hi, Mary Lou. <laughs> so what was it about Tasmania that beckoned you to us and made you set up home there? I'd always wanted to live in the country. I wanted to do rural. I wanted gardens, animals, space, distance between neighbours, all those glorious things. I hadn't actually thought of Tasmania and then a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a long time, we caught up and he showed me a picture of this magnificent house he'd built in Tasmania. So for me, it was like, there's, a, there's an opportunity and I might take him up and go and rent his house. We're now married. So for me, it was following a house, actually, and then a boy. Wow. That's a great story. So it's in, you're in rural Tasmania, which south of Hobart, down the, what's called the channel, Dr. Kirsty Channel. So of course, you know it well. We're down past Woodbridge. So looking out over Bruny Island. Yes, I know. There were lots and lots of apple orchards around there, as well as yes. in Hume Valley. So originally I was going to set the last of the apple blossom in night, uh, which completely burned not, down in the 1950s. Yes. Bushfires, there was virtually nothing left. But then I found a little place. Anyway, enough about me. Let's get back to you. <laughs> we can talk about Tasmania for hours. Let's do that. So how long have you lived there? Over 10 years now. Right. Yeah, quite a while, long enough that I feel Tasmanian. Um, and I'm very fortunate that where I live, there's a lot of incomers, a lot of mainlanders who've come down. and there, But there is also a, a very core population of what I call B&Bs, born and bred, yeah. generational families who've been in this area for five, six generations in the same houses, in the same land, in the same properties. And I find that in the area that I'm in, there is no division between us and them. Um, very welcoming. It's very blended. If you love the area, this is your home. And we're very accepted, which is lovely. Yeah, good, good. So you've got a Tasmanian tuxedo then? I actually don't. 
Oh, so I hate the sound of my mom. I'm like, you got them. Oh, she's got one. Um, there. No, I don't. I wear wool coats. Right. For those who don't know what a Tasmanian tuxedo is, you'll just need to Google it. Okay. Yeah. So, Joe, how has living in Tasmania affected your writing? Oh, hugely. Absolutely. We've started everything that I've written since I've been here is set in Tasmania. It's, it lends itself. To, to give you a bit of backstory, I wasn't too sure which direction I was going to take my writing, whether I was going to do warm women's fiction or chilling psychological suspense. So I was a bit torn, but I found that Tasmania lent itself to both. But there were there was space for both. So I started it off and then I found that I was drawn to darker. And Tasmania, I feel, lent itself very well to stories of isolation, loneliness, secrets, Dark deeds, unsolved crime. It's a small place, but there's so much that's still hidden, out of sight. And a lot of people run away to Tasmania, which is where my story starts, yeah. of course. So the place has affected my writing immensely, but also, I guess, the mental space as well, being somewhere away from the city, having a life that's very much set around our property. So I run the animals and the gardens and everything here. So I had that cyclical space around the writing. So in winter, the shorter days, the longer nights, it was time to write, which of course, as we all know, is vital to getting the story down. So let's talk about your fabulous book, The House of Now and Then. Honestly, I could not put this down. I even posted on the socials about reading it at the bar because I couldn't, I didn't want to have a shower because I couldn't read, but I knew I could read in the bar. I read it in one go. I just went from woe to go in a whole day, staying up late. And honestly, Joe, it's just such a great book. So congratulations. Oh, God, thank you. <laughs> it still gives me goosebumps. And I've had a few people say they couldn't put it down. And literally, I've got, I get goosebumps when people say that because you, it's what you want. People to be so engaged in a story that they just get pulled through it. That's what I want. I, my books, uh, I like them to be fast-paced and page-turning engrossing. You've absolutely done it with the house of now and then. Can you give us just a brief synopsis of the story? It's a story told in two timelines. We've got in the present day we've got Olivia who has made some stupid mistakes. She's done some things and put her on the public page and she's got she's basically run away to hide from the scrutiny and the viciousness and the and the online troll and what have you of what she did. So she's hiding out in Tasmania and then a stranger turns up at her door to cause freaks her out terribly because not only she run away, she put her friend in jail for something. Friend did, and Olivia had testified against. Um, so she thinks she's being hunted. So she's a bit scared if Tommy turns up. He says he's there to track down a woman who lived in the house 30 years earlier. So he's on a mission from his father, who's died, to deliver a letter to this woman. But she gets, Olivia gets, finally gets caught up in, in his search. Two of them go on a mission to solve this unsolved missing person case and discover it's not the woman that's missing but her boyfriend from those heady days of 1986. So they go on that mission. Flip side is that we see the 1986 storyline of the these glorious summer days where this girl Pippa, it's a bit of a, she's a backpacker, she's a, she's a bit of a wild child, a bit of free bohemian, and she comes out and she meets a lot. She's health sitting at the house where Olivia latest later was hiding out and she meets a local boy called Leo they fall madly in love and Leo's parents are not happy about this night Leo gets up and slips out of her bed and is never seen again 
Jerry get the heady days of 1986 and it's wonderful tales of summer and nostalgia and love and the disappearance. And we have the present day where Olivia's dealing with her demons and solving the unsolved crime. And all set in this beautiful house, which has a character of it. So I really want to go stay in that house. It's quite a while since I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great title, by the way. Was that a, your original title, The House of Now yeah, and Then? Or was it something that came up with your publisher? No, I, I came up with a title. So the original seeds of the story were laid down in about 2015. And I finished the full first draft about 2017. And it was about then I stuck the title on it. And it has stayed and stuck right through acquisition, full editorial process. And at any time I expected them to say, this is silly. But now they liked it. It's a great title and it's evocative. Well, good. It was so funny after all this talk around the chat, GPT, the AI, where you put in questions to the AI and it comes up. So I asked it to give me the back cover blurb for the house of now and then. The story was completely different to what mine was. But it was really good. <laughs> I generated and thought, that sounds actually quite cool. So, yeah, it is evocative, but for the AI, it evocative did in the wrong direction. I, I don't know if you know the writer, Alison Stewart, but she did this tiny thing where she, one of her books was translated and then she Googled the trans, she Googled translated the translation of the blurb back into English. And it was completely yes. It was hilarious. It was just hilarious. It was so funny. And I said to her, I'm going to write that book because that's a brilliant synopsis. But instead, it, it was nonsensical. It was never. Now, with this book, you're working with dual timelines. You've got a twisty ending, very satisfying. So, was it difficult for you to keep everything, just to keep up with everything, with your timelines, with your twists? Did you have it all mapped out before you started or did it evolve as you go, as you went? I, I lean towards being a plotter. So I did have, I plot on big art, big art sketchbooks with coloured sharpies. So I had circles and loops and arrows and all sorts of things going on. So once I realised it was going to be dual timeline, I plotted out roughly in the arcs for both stories, both timelines. But when I started writing it, I wrote it in the form that it would take in the book. So I jumped from timeline to timeline when I was writing. And I found that, for me, helped hang, put cliffhangers on the end of on chapters. So I'd get a sense like, of the rhythm of the book, that two, three chapters in that timeline was enough. And we got to a point where it was a good spot to leave off and go back to the other timeline. So go from present, say, to 1986, because... I love reading dual timelines, but you want to make sure that both of them are engaging so that when readers go through, they don't go, oh, God, we're back in 1986. I want to get back to, you know, I want to be on the other timeline. So I tried very much to keep the timelines engaging, hooking the reader and leaving them wanting more at the end when we cut off from there. I also work in Scrivener. Certainly love Scrivener. Love Scrivener. And of course, the ability to move your little notes around on this cork board and re-jig things made it much easier. So many of the chapters are in the structural form that they were when I first wrote them. They've all obviously been improved dramatically since the first or second draft, but that shimmering, the moving them around, jostling them about happened quite early. And I didn't find it overly difficult. I had a sense of the rhythm of the book from that point on. Twists, some of them surprised me. 
So there's one big twist in the book which didn't appear until about, I don't know, right before I really wrapped it up. And I went, oh, my God, I didn't know that was in there. I didn't know that happened. You might know what I'm talking about if you've read the book, and it astonished me. So there are twists that suddenly pop out. The writing process is from that. Brains are just doing these kind of magical, mystical things in the background that we don't know about. And then it's, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Aren't I clever? Now, you and I have something else in common apart from Ted McIntosh. We both did Fiona McIntosh's masterclass. So, did, and when you're doing her masterclass, you have to give her 10 pages before the masterclass that she reads and then you have a one-on-one -on -one with her. So did you take the house of now and then to Fiona's yes. masterclass? I did. I did. So by the time Fiona did her first out of Adelaide masterclass, and she did a mini masterclass down here in Hobart, it was meant to happen, I think it was mid-2021, and then, of course, it was delayed, pushed back, or restrictions, what have you, and it didn't take place until January 2022. In that time, I was actually offered my contract with Harlequin HarperCollins. So by the time I got to the masterclass, I was signed, but in the meantime, between the original class date and the date we got together, Fiona had said, send, us, send me your 10,000. In the meantime, I'll read and we'll do Zoom face-to-face. -face. So we got that out of the way. So when I did that with her, I hadn't been signed. Um, she read my first three chapters, said there's absolutely nothing wrong with your writing, great writing, thoroughly engaging. Your synopsis is terrible. <laughs> it is terrible. I've got this synopsis. I don't know what's going on. You've got too many characters. This little bit here sounds enticing. All the rest of it is... It's just it's too much, too much. And I went away and went, you're right. There's nothing wrong with the book, but I can't explain it to people. <laughs> Synopsis are horrible. <laughs> They're oh, themselves. Oh, they are. And so I rewrote the synopsis, tightened it, shredded it, brought it down to the absolute nuances of what, it, what the book is about. And then I pitched and I got picked up. So even though by the time I got to Masterclass, I had been contracted, I absolutely believe that Fiona's brutal but on-point on criticism of my synopsis meant that I got this brilliant synopsis that when I pitched to Harlequin, caught their eye. So I give credit to Fiona absolutely every time. The How to Now and Then is your debut published novel, but is it the first book you ever wrote? No. So when I first, I got serious about writing about 2009 and one of those people that had always written and then suddenly, not suddenly, over the years I thought I want to write, I want to do something more with it, I want to write books. 2009 I got serious and I thought, what can I write? I'll write one of those little books, one of those little short romance books, Mills and Boone, because they look easy and you know where I'm going with this. They are not easy. They are specific. They have a dedicated readership who have expectations. So I don't like to call those romance books formula because there is a formula to all writing. There's a structure and what have you. But it's just that they have a prolific readership who know what they want. And I came to the realization that I went too dark every time. I could put sentences together and paragraphs together, but I couldn't deliver what was wanted for these romance books. So I did write a couple and I enjoyed the process and learned so much from it. 
but I realized it just wasn't the right fit for me. So then I went away, played around with different ideas, played around with different plots. And then I was living in Bangkok in 2014, 2015. And I was doing my master's and the seeds for this story started to take shape. And I started on the house of now and then, and that was the one that I stuck with. So it's my first completed novel, full length, longer, long form novel. Was it, I pitched it, it wasn't picked up. So I went away and wrote something else. So I had two fully written, edited, polished manuscripts by the time I pitched to Harlequin and was picked up. So they actually contracted both those completed manuscripts. Wow. Yeah. Lucky, lucky you. Which just goes to confirm that advice is so often given to writers is if you finish something and you're pitching it, don't stop writing. Write something else and keep busy because you never know when that editor that you pitched is going to say, what else have you got? And if you go, (laughs) I've also got this, it can be helpful. So did Nicola from HQ read the second book before she offered you a two-book deal? Yes. Yes, you can. And so are you working on a third book now? How does this I am. So I'm just about to submit book two to Rachel now, Rachel Donovan, who's now my editor. So that's about to go back in and start structural on that one. And then book three is in my head, rattling around and I'm dying to get stuck into it. So yeah, book three is about to get going. (laughs) Now you mentioned your master's previously, so that was a master's in creative writing? Masters in writing at Swinburne, not the creative writing one, which I really enjoyed. It was also a fabulous way to put off writing a novel. Okay. How? Because it was covered, the, the degree or the masters was quite academic and it covered a broad range of writing and it was to write, write in criticism and online writing and I can't remember journalistic writing whatever so it was very broad I didn't just focus on creative writing and I enjoyed the subject immensely didn't do a lot of actual writing of not that came right towards the end of it process of doing the masters was fascinating and enjoyable and just kept me from feeling guilty about not sitting down and doing (laughs) ages and words so yeah so I felt like I was doing progression towards this ultimate dream of being a writer while in reality I was just faffing about so it was your ultimate dream to be a writer. How many years had that been your dream before it became reality? I tell this little story about when I was five years old and I had learned to read quite early and, I'd, and I was writing. And I wrote a letter, it must be about grade one, I wrote a story in grade one. And the teacher said, this is amazing, this is wonderful, let's go and share it with the class next door. So I got to go next door, read my story, had an audience Wow. Loved it. Thought, this is what I do. This is me. Identity formed early. The following week, she picked someone else. I was distraught. And I thought, <laughs> no, I'm the writer. So I tangled along behind them and insisted that I also go because I am the writer and I will deliver my story as well. Wow. Boy, politely arrogant about my ability. And then, of course, as with so many of us, we play with it over the years and pull it out from the cupboard and write little things and life takes over and you get on with it. When I went to university, it just wasn't an option. The kids these days have got so many creative industry options when it comes to post-high school study or vet studies or whatever it might be. For us, for me, 
there was nothing. If you wanted to write, you did journalism, which I had no interest in. So you just, you're never encouraged to go down. And it was so hard to find information on how to write a book. You know, it just didn't exist. Like, like today, you can just go online and get all this information. You do the courses, you do the workshops, you get the craft books, which I highly recommend. And the information is available. So yeah, it's much, no, I wouldn't say easier, but the information is easier, more easily accessible now. Yes. And I find that there is a lot online for aspiring authors and how to get published and all that kind of stuff. But now you have a book out there and you have a second book already written, like a year. Do you find yourself in a bit of a limbo because you're not aspiring anymore? You're actually emerging. Do you find that there is less support around the situation you're in at the moment? That's a really good question. When you're aspiring, the goal is getting picked up, getting a contract, a publisher, or say yes. And once you hit that goal, which I don't want to make it sound like it just came upon me, it took years and years. When you hit that goal, there's celebration. And it's like you're let into a secret society. Curtain's drawn back and you get to see the other side of the curtain. And then you realize there's this whole other space of goals and paths and information and learning that you have to do. It's not, you're there, not by a long shot. So there's a lot of things that you don't know when you get behind that curtain. Having a great publisher helps or a great editor helps because you you don't feel stupid for asking questions. Reaching out and making connection with other authors like yourself is absolutely vital because that's where you get to ask the questions that you feel awkward asking your editors or Within the publication industry, you don't want to ask things that you don't know what the rules are. You don't know what the rules of manners and etiquette and behavior are. So you tend to hold back and not, not ask those questions or say the things that you, that you don't have answers for. So having connection with other writers who are further along in their careers is, I think, vitally important to new authors, to new published or almost published authors. Yes, and a safe space where you can ask those questions. To, yes. or talk about what you're going through. I think that's yes. really important because I've spoken to quite a few debut authors and it sometimes can be a bit of a shock. I thought once I got published, published everything would be rosen. No. We'd all be in this beautiful golden land because so many people right. are just head, heading for that and there's so much online and everywhere about that. But what happens after it happens? After you get that publishing deal, it's like, it's exactly as you said, it's drawing back that curtain and going, oh, I'm in a completely new country. Know the rules. Yeah. Don't know the rules and you don't know the etiquette. I asked, I had a wonderful chat with a couple of well-known authors and I said, what's the etiquette around what we talk about as authors? And they said, talk about anything except numbers and leave away from numbers. <laughs> anything to do with numbers. <laughs> it's impolite. It's impolite to run up to someone and say, "What's your print release for your first book?" Or so, little things like that. There, there is etiquette around interaction and dealing with your publisher and authors and agents and bookstores and publicists and all the rest of it. And having other authors give you help in that direction is gives you confidence, a bit more confidence. And how do you find those authors to talk to and share this stuff with? 
social media. Social media, definitely. And most everyone I've come into contact has been so generous and so helpful. There, there's a wonderful writing community in Australia. It's incredible. There are also I continue to go to the Romance Writers Conferences, even though I don't technically write romance. There's a love story in my book, but it's could be romantic elements rather than a romance. But I find the RWA conferences are so supportive. It's the most wonderful atmosphere. I they one run wonderful workshops, they have great presenters, and there's connection. And to go along to the last one I went to in Perth, and the number of published and multiple published authors who still go to these conferences to give back, also to make connection, to network, although network's probably a too dry a word for it, to make friendships and to support each other. That social side of it is incredible. Conferences, workshops, social media, and just reaching out to people and being generous back to help. We, we should back each other and help each other. Yeah. And I totally agree about the RWA. It's an amazing organisation. Great writers, mm-hmm. great people. I've done their courses online as well, which is so reasonably priced. There's a lot. And yeah, neither of us write category romance, but there are a lot of people there who are, who are members who don't. And uh, yeah, just phenomenal support. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So romance, art, Joe Dixon, what's at the heart of your writing? I love this question. And I've really had to think about it because sometimes you don't realise what it is that is at the back. You know, the heart of your story until well after you've written them, until almost I see other people react to them and I go, oh, that's what I've done. It was unintended. And I think that what's at the heart of my stories is flawed characters because I do believe that most of us at some point do stupid things, make mistakes. Some of them <laughs> bigger than others. So I think I like, I do like flawed characters, but I also like characters who get flawed, get themselves into a bit of a pickle and then realise that they are stronger than they think they are. And that they find their dignity, they find a path back from whatever loneliness, darkness that they've got themselves into. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm, I've, at the moment, I think that's where I'm sitting. Well, The House of Now Then is a fabulous novel. I suggest everyone race out and buy it and read it if you haven't already. And you may be like me, where you just not put it down and have to have a bath instead of a shower so you can just keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, where can people find you online? Um, I'm on Instagram as joe.dixon.write. That's probably the most, the place where I'm most active. I do have a website, Joe Dixon Writes as well, from memory. And I just have a Facebook page, but I'm not terribly active on Facebook. And I really must do more with it. Must do a bit more. But Instagram would be the most social place for me. Most interaction. You haven't been lured over to TikTok? I'm fascinated by TikTok. I'm fascinated. And I'm getting more confident with video and reels. Ironically, my youngest son is a filmmaker. Oh, um, <laughs> quite, he's an award-winning filmmaker. He's just headed off to university to study screen and media. And he comes in and goes, it's everything up. Me going on. I'm like, now what? I'm not, I have a strange perception of TikTok. I find it entertaining, some of the things I've seen. But I find that I think it's very driven by the reader. I think it's a reader's environment. It's their reactions. You know, the Colin Hoover phenomenon is based on 
a reader's genuine reaction to her work. And of course, it goes viral and it takes off. We can't manufacture that. We, I, I, as the writer, can't create that sort of interaction. And I think some writers are doing wonderful things and clever things, but it's not going to generate that kind of reader response where it's evocative of what they're feeling and their thoughts, feelings, opinions, reactions. So I'm never saying but not yet. Okay. Thanks again for joining us on Rights for Women, Joe Dixon's oh, debut novel, The House of Now and Then. And um, I know you're still in the new release glow, but when can we expect, when can we expect your next one? It's a horrible question to ask when you've just had a book come out. But, but seeing as you've already written that, <laughs> Actually, it's funny. I have already written it, but I've realised it's not dark enough. Strangely, so I've got to. I'm just darkening the pages somewhat and increasing the suspense. But I'm. I don't know a release date for it. I at this stage, it's scheduled for next year. I'm hoping around about a year from now. That would be my dream, but yet to be confirmed. But next year, I shall very much look forward to reading it because I absolutely love the house at now and then. Joe Dixon, thank you so much. Mary Lou, thank you. It is an absolute pleasure to talk with you and so enjoyable. I've had a great time. Thank you. And thank you for reading my book. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website so much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at Pamela Cook. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>